would to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. It's where we uh, left off previously as we're continuing through uh, studying 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, well, all of 1 Corinthians actually. But we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today. If you'll uh, turn there to verse 23, it's where we'll begin. And um, the section ends, oh yeah, I wanted to mention this. It, it ends at chapter 1, verse 1. But um, new member uh, orientation, uh, first steps class, I've been working on that. And uh, I want to talk about it as an on-ramp. It's an on-ramp. You're on a journey, and that journey is going to include the importance of a church family, someplace that you can uh, belong. And believing and belonging go together. And so at some point, we hope that you will take seriously the idea of becoming a part of this congregation as a covenant community, which means that we make promises to each other. A covenant is a promise. We say, hey, I belong to you. I recognize that we belong to one another. And so uh, I'm working on uh, having a new member orientation that, as it says, it will be succinct. So I don't want it to last forever. I want it to get to the main ideas and communicate important doctrinal truths and talk about what it means to be a part of this congregation. So if you have never uh, attended a church uh, like a new members class here in the past or you haven't taken a step of membership, I hope you'll be praying about join, joining us uh, once I get that pulled together. So it will be soon. I'm working on it now. All right? So 1 Corinthians chapter number uh, 10, and begin there in verse number 23. The Bible says that uh, Paul says here, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify or build up. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for, the con- and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? I think this is an aside. When you read this, you can say, Paul sometimes stops and puts words in their mouth. He's anticipating what they're thinking. And I think that's one of the cases where he's anticipating that they're saying, okay, you say, you know, be, be conscious of the other person's or be aware of the other person's conscience. Why should my freedom be limited by somebody else's perspective or conscience? And so he's answering them in the closing uh, uh, passages. I think verse 30 is the same thing. But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? And then he answers, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for how it guides and uh, directs our lives as we listen to it and as we make it a part of our own understanding and conviction. And so I pray that that will be our uh, willingness. Create that willingness, Lord, in our hearts even now to obey your word, Lord, to listen to it closely and attentively, 
and to obey it and to align our lives with it. And we pray that you'll help us now as we uh, look at your word and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I think the point of this passage that we're reading and we're going to take a look at today is to help us understand what grace is like. As we understand grace as an important biblical concept, he, uh, the scripture is going to help us understand how grace, what it is and how, to, how it looks in practice in a person's life. So grace is God's free gift to us that comes to us in Jesus Christ. That's grace. It's unmerited favor, some people would say. You don't deserve it, and yet because Jesus Christ was willing to pay the great sacrifice that he did for us on the cross, it's a, a gift that's available to whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the, the Bible says. And so there, uh, what the congregation is working through is the question of what does grace mean practically to me? What can I do? What, am I, what is my freedom, my liberty in Christ grant to me? What can I do? What can't I do? And basically what we understand about them is they adopted this adage or idea. They say, all things because of grace are permissible to me. That's what he says here. And he's already uh, quoted that back to them because it's their mantra, okay? Their mantra is that grace means because God has freely forgiven me, my life has no limits or there's nothing that inhibits me. I'm forgiven after all. But what he's going to say is, no, that's not a correct understanding of grace. All things are permissible uh, for me is not a correct understanding of grace. That's not what Christian liberty really means. So two ideas that are important, and at least in this passage is one, that the Bible says God is love, right? That's a big... uh, helpful idea of who God is. The Bible says God is love, and that should never be diminished to anybody. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I saw this conversation. Um, Sometimes I think uh, me at my best is not wading into Facebook conversations and interacting with people about controversial things. But this conversation basically indicated, uh, you know, how people will say God uh, hates sin but loves the sinner. God hates sin but loves the sinner. I I think that is totally true. And this passage demonstrates it that the scripture says God so loved the world. In another place it says, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were what? Still sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. Who did God love? People that were stuck in their sin. That's who God loved. He loved you before you were a religious person, if you are. He loved you before you were a spiritual person, if you're a spiritual person. He loved you before you identified yourself as a Christian. I think about my own path in life. I graduated from high school when I was 18 years old, 1981. You know, I'm a fossil, long, long ago. And I had no idea about what I was going to do, you know, in life. I had no idea. I'm glad for people that like are going to college and stuff. I had no idea. It was scary. It really was. And from 18 to 24, uh, you know, graduating from high school, at 24 years of age, I gave my life to Christ. And and it's the first time in life I can say 
God really began to help me understand that he did have a plan for my life and a purpose and a direction. And I so wish that before that, of course, I wasn't willing, but before that, I had an openness to be led by God and listen to God. But, you know, our lives, in our lives, God loves us even when we don't relate to God or think about God, which I didn't until I turned 24 and became willing to trust him as my Savior. But he had already loved me. He already had laid down his life for me. He already had a purpose for me long before I ever responded to him. God is love. And God's love is demonstrated in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. But the Bible also says God is holy. And he says, even as I am holy, you be holy. He, he says we're to be a holy people. Once we understand what grace means, it means both of those things. So we hold them in tension. The fact that the Bible says God is love, and at the same time God says holiness matters to God, even uh, and especially for those that follow him. So we think about these questions. What does grace really mean? That's what they were struggling with. Grace gave them something they didn't deserve, but now what does it mean in in their life and in their journey? What's permissible? They say everything. Paul says, no, it's not. So a part of their, their challenge was that they were pushing beyond limits in an unhealthy way. And this conversation with them touches on something that's not relevant to you exactly. And we've talked about that, that they had the problem of being invited into someone's home and being told, hey, the meat you're about to eat has previously been altered, offered on the altar of a deity that you don't worship. And they had to decide, well, is my faith going to enter into this? If they're told that, is it important to me that that already happened? And so they, their concept was we can do anything. So we can do that. We can eat this meat offered to idols. And Paul is saying, or really what we should understand is that even though the identical circumstances may not apply to you, you still need to know what grace means and what's permissible and what are there limits and boundaries. And if you go too far, where is too far? We kind of talked about that previously with the idea of idolatry. It, it won't announce itself. If you get into some unsafe place, it's not going to announce itself. You know, part of the problem is that, that you'll be there and you'll have gotten there and not really understood that you transgressed into some dangerous place. And so this idea of what grace means, how does it function and look in a, in a believer's life is critical and important. So syncretism became a practice for them. That's a word we're probably not super familiar with. But the idea was that if you go to the pagan temple and you embrace its practices while confessing to be a Christian and you try to blend these two things together, they'll never blend together. They don't belong together. Syncretism is the idea that we take Christianity and we compromise it and put something else in there. And there are all sorts of things that that people will put in there. And, and it takes away the simplicity of Jesus for us. But that's what had happened for them. It's like, okay, paganism is a temptation. And maybe it, it was a temptation for a lot of reasons. It opened doors sometimes, socially. The trade guild sometimes in their day. 
In other words, employment might be attached to the idea of just being friendly and compromising in this way. And so if I just compromise a little, if I just give away a little of my Christian identity, then I, I can get this really good job. So for them, there were temptations all bound up in it. And some of it was arrogance that they had, the, this particular group of believers, <clears throat> that they trusted themselves far too much. And so Paul tries to help them see what Christian liberty really looks like. How, what does it look like? How is it practical for us to know what grace does and doesn't mean? Well, first, in this passage, we see our liberty in Christ should be used for the well-being of others. How do I know that my practice of an understanding of the theology of grace is a biblical one? Well, it will cause me to think about other people and to practice good things in relationship to them. So they have this slogan, all things are permissible to me. That's what he's, he's quoting here. And he says, yes, but not everything is helpful. Not everything builds up. You can do all kinds of things, perhaps, that are in the scope of your Christian liberty, but it may not be helpful to, <coughs> to someone else. So they, they're really thinking, doesn't grace mean that we're not shackled to rules and legalism? You'll have to forgive me. I had a rough week. I may drink more than one time from this little bottle, but... I'm dealing with sinus stuff all week. But the, their question is, doesn't grace mean that, you know, we're not shackled to... I hope that doesn't bother anybody. I prob, promise I won't do it every week. <laughs> but I'm going to need it again probably. Doesn't grace mean that we're not shackled to rules and legalism? Well, yes, in part it means that, but not totally. Philip Yancey cautioned against grace abuse. He, he wrote a book. Um, What's So Amazing About Grace, one of my favorite books by Philip Yancey. And in that book, he used the illustration of a person who anticipated that his behavior was going to uh, be detrimental to his relationship with God, but he pursued the behavior anyway. And he says, that's grace abuse. You know, the idea that because I'm forgiven, because Christ has already died for my sins, then anything is on the table for me. He says, no, that's abuse of grace. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may know the name. He was a German uh, theologian and pastor who was leading congregations at the time that Hitler was in power in Germany and actually was martyred by Hitler in one of the, at Auschwitz before he, uh, well, as he passed away. And really the camp that he was in was liberated almost immediately after he was martyred. But he was martyred because of his opposition to Nazism uh, as a church leader. And he, talked, he wrote in a, a, a book about cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. That's cheap grace. He says it, ha- it doesn't have implications for a person's life in, in, a, in ways that would be healthy for them. So grace doesn't permit us to use our liberty as an opportunity to indulge our flesh, Galatians says, but rather to serve one another in love. Grace 
it says, don't misuse grace as an opportunity to indulge your flesh, but rather serve one another in love. That's what grace is supposed to do. It takes us out of the worst part of ourselves and puts us into the better, the better part of ourselves. Because flesh in the Bible, when you hear the word flesh, it is a catch-all word for the worst parts of yourself. When the Bible uses the word flesh, it's talking about the gunky stuff that everybody knows about their self. But if you live in that, you're outside God's will. So thoughts, behaviors, commitments. He says you, freedom doesn't mean that you can indulge your flesh, the worst part of yourself. Rather, it means that we build other people up. We help people. We build them up. So no one should seek his own welfare, the Scripture says, but the welfare of his neighbors. That's what the Bible says here. Kingdom thoughtfulness is disruptive to a person's life. So we think about what this passage that we're digesting is talking about Christian liberty. And underneath that, I I thought about thoughtfulness as a pathway to freedom. So thoughtfulness means that I'm mindful of what God's purpose for me is And what I understand about it is that it's going to constantly disrupt my flesh and keep me from uh, living a selfish life. And the tendency, honestly, for most people is toward a selfish life. It's toward a life that does what it wants and doesn't think about how it affects everyone else around them. Well, that's not a kingdom life. That's not what grace means in our lives. If uh, our overriding concern is for comfort and never to be interrupted or disrupted, we can be sure that we're not following Jesus very closely. Because that's not what following Jesus is like. Jesus is the person who said things like this. If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and come after me. Let him follow me. Through difficulty. Anybody that wants to follow Jesus is going to suffer in the world, the Bible says, because they're going to deny themselves and live a lifestyle of commitment to to Christ. So we should be willing frequently to lay aside our preferences. That's not too hard. And the Bible says that if I'm looking out for the well, are my preferences important? Of course they are. But if I'm following Jesus, it means I'm going to be mindful of the other people that God has put around me in my life, in my family, my marriage, my church. All the places that I have connections. And this really is only possible as you function under the control of the Holy Spirit. As the Bible says that being filled with the Spirit is the the key to living this kind of life. That uh, as we keep yielding and surrendering to His impulses and His leadership. So how do I know that grace, as I'm understanding it, is a biblical kind of grace? It's going to lead me to consider the well-being of the other person. But secondly, in this passage, your liberty in Christ is not some exaggerated reality. You know, when I read this passage, I think a person might go, okay, well, the Bible says I'm free, but I'm not free to do everything apparently. You know, if I'm free, what does freedom mean? How is it defined? Is it just some exaggerated statement the Bible's making? Is it saying I'm free, but I'm not really free? No, you've been free, set free, but your liberty implies a different direction and one that's in step with with Christ. So it's not exaggerated. One thing I'm grateful for and I'm constantly learning is that we don't have to live our lives nervously paranoid that we haven't been scrupulous enough. 
That is not what it means to be a Christian. You know, sometimes we think, am I dotting the I's? Am I crossing the T's? Have I jumped through the appropriate hoops? But that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus died for you. And his death was the final payment for our sin debt. And Jesus was raised from the dead powerfully to demonstrate that salvation was effective. So Jesus did it. He finished it. When he was on the cross and he said, it is finished, that's exactly what he was implying, is that salvation was accomplished fully, finally through him. Once and for all is the way it's <coughs> excuse me, put in the book of, of Hebrews. So we, we, that, the idea that, you know, sometimes we carry around this, this load of guilt and, and we, you know, wonder, has my performance been adequate for God to accept me? That's the wrong question always. The wrong question always is, is my performance adequate for God to accept me? I can tell you it's not ever. Your performance is never going to be adequate. for. If your performance was adequate for God to accept you, Jesus would not have had to go to the cross. Here's what the Bible teaches instead as a corollary is that God is pleased with Jesus. God is pleased with Jesus. Jesus was perfect in the performance of God's will. And only Jesus. So he fully and finally satisfied God's just requirements as a perfect person dying for imperfect people. Whew! Isn't that a relief? That is a relief to me to know that it is not some list of things that I perform daily. It is what Jesus Christ did as the perfect sacrifice himself, God in human form. So after that, the right question becomes... How then should I live as a recipient of God's mercy? Uh, Romans chapter 6 verse 1 and following tells this, uh, you know, so powerfully. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's exactly the question here. What's permissible? Should I continue in sin just to demonstrate how powerful grace is? His answer is, no. Heavens, no. He says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, even so you also should walk in a brand new life. The baptistry, that's a liturgy for the baptistry. That Paul gave. Basically what he's saying is that when a person identifies with Jesus and water baptism by immersion is a portrayal. In the same way we talked about communion as a portrayal. Filling up this baptistry with water, which right now will require a little bit of work. But filling it up and a human being standing in there as a way of professing their public faith in Jesus Christ for the, you know, for the first time in that way. When that person, the pastor, the officiant, lowers them into the water, you don't hold them that long, then you raise them back up. When that person comes back up out of the water, that is a picture of what just happened to them. It is basically saying, me, the old me is dead. He's, he's gone. When I'm raised up, I'm raised to life with Jesus. 
So Paul says, how shall we who died to sin live any... How can I live with that as my, as my impulse and my, you know, the pursuit of my life now? He's saying it's not appropriate to what you professed when you died and were raised to life in identifying with the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did. Jesus did that for you. He died and was raised again to give you the power to live a different kind of life. And that's what grace implies to us. And so we live a grateful, worshiping life afterward. So this, this is when we think about freedom in Christ. This is, you know, the scripture is saying it's not an exaggerated reality. We're free to live a new life. That's what you're free to do. You're free also to use things wisely because he keeps quoting, or he does in the New King James anyway, twice he cites Psalm 24 verse 1 which says the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. So if everything in the, this is, he's carrying on the same conversation. He's basically saying, okay, if God made everything in the world, can't I use everything in the world? And basically he says, it is true that God made everything in the world, but use it wisely. And he he says, you can do certain things, but there are certain things that even though you could do them, it would be unwise for you to, to do so. So, He talks here about them being invited to the home of a person that has, uh, he says he's a non-believer. The word that, the idea he uses is a person who doesn't express faith in Christ. It's clear. So they live among people who even though they have committed their life to Christ, some of the people around them do not. He says if they invite you to go to have a meal with them and you want to go, you should go which is a a good reminder to us, again, we've talked about this before, about gospel hospitality. How are you going to be salt and light if your life is completely separated from everybody else in the world that doesn't yet know Jesus? You know, God intends to use the lives of Christians as witnesses. So he says if your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus invites you to come over, go, go hang out, get to know them, be with them. But in their situation, they were offered something knowing that it, that it crossed over into paganism. And he says, in that case, do not, don't eat what's set in front of you. So he says, practice social situations for the sake of the gospel, but don't lose sight of who you are in those social situations. That would be the practical application for us. So... I'm probably, you know, going to be careful if somebody asks me to a kegger or something like that. Well, I am not sure this really fits in with my identity in Christ. So, you know, definitely, absolutely. Jesus himself, if you remember, was criticized in Scripture for exactly the, at exactly this point. They, they said in Luke chapter 15... <clears throat> He eats with despicable sinners. He hangs out with people that we don't approve of. That was the Pharisees in his day. And he associates and even eats with them. So what we know about Jesus is that that is what Jesus did. He went to people and engaged in social situations with people that strictly religious people considered people he shouldn't have been hanging around. But Jesus still maintained truth in his presence. So, but he, it's interesting. Jesus tells this story about the uh, Pharisee and the publican. You remember this story? He says they both went up to the temple and the Pharisee 
said, I think, this was his prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. He said, I thank you, I'm not like other men. I, uh, I tithe, I pray, he says, I don't commit adultery. You know, he lists all his virtues of things that he, that he does. But the, the publican, who in this case is a tax collector and despised in his society, the Bible says wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he smote his breast and said, God have mercy on me, the sinner. God have mercy on me. And Jesus said, guess who went to his house justified? Not the Pharisee who listed his own virtue. Because he was blind to the fact that the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's not one righteous. There's nobody that stands before God on their own merit. The other guy had it right. The guy who saw himself in the need that he had was the one. And and so the Bible says as an aspect here of our liberty, use your liberty to go to people who need to know Jesus. That's what all of us should do. But also we recognize that our liberty in Christ is limited, even in situations like that. So thirdly, in the passage, your liberty in Christ is limited. It's limited by your desire to be a witness. Hopefully we, you know, we see that. We will possibly be in situations that put social uh, pressure on us to act contrary to our Christian convictions. Jesus didn't set aside uh, truth to reach people. The Bible says in John chapter uh, 1 verse 14 that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Not one or the other. So he was full of grace, and that grace extended to, to people who were stuck in their sin, but he, he didn't set aside God's revealed truth through himself to do that. So if you lose your distinction, if you lose your character as a follower of Jesus, you don't have anything to offer the person who needs to see the transforming power of grace. So we, we maintain the distinction in our own life, in our choices, so that we can be, and that's a, a decision that we make. We limit our, ourselves intentionally so that our witness is not, is not harmed. So we, we limit our freedom because we don't live on an island. The uh, scripture says that, uh, well, we don't live on an island. In other words, my life is intertwined with the life of other people and has influence even if you think it doesn't, some, some people think, <clears throat> you know, I'm a nobody. Nobody really knows uh, much about me. But no, everybody's life is intertwined with other people's lives and has influence and importance. I love this old poem. It says, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by things that you do and words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? What's the gospel according to you? Our freedom is limited by the law of liberty. The uh, scripture talks about this law in Romans 13 verse uh, 10 and also in James chapter 2 verse 8 where it says the law of liberty is the love of neighbor. So if I love my neighbor, love does no harm to a, a neighbor. And so I limit myself in respect to other people. I'm not going to take advantage of them or uh, treat them despicably or do, be dishonest in my connection to them. And in that, that way we voluntarily limit ourselves. So in, our liberty is limited in that regard. Our liberty in Christ must glorify God, fourthly. The scripture here says 
Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. So the practical part of this was that they were being asked to do something that that involved um, meal fellowship, which we all like. I do. It's like, how do you know it was your birthday? Because I had steak and shrimp and like, you know, big threw down. (laughs) So we like meal fellowship. He says, listen, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of the, the Lord. So this is the vital test. Is my goal to bring glory to God through my choices and commitments? Is my goal to bring glory to God through my choices and, and my commitments? That's the thought process for a serious, maturing Christian. How do I know? Am I, am I a serious, maturing Christian? Well, the test for everything that I do is going to be, is God going to be glorified through this? Is, is God going to be magnified in the eyes of people? John Piper said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we think about that, it reminds us of where the Bible says, um, blessed is the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That person can be satisfied. That person can be satisfied. So when he says God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him, that's the implication. Is it a person that hungers and thirsts? After righteousness. And we, we, um, God is glorified in us when we worship him habitually but not routinely. I think about that. You know, the truth about graduates, which congratulations on graduation and the next stage of things, is that it's, it's interesting in relationship to church how often after graduation now, People just say goodbye to spiritual community forever. It's like it becomes, you know, less than the centering thing in their life. I think it's why it's so important for us when we come here. Like a prayer that I had for people today is that we bring our whole self into, you know, what we did here for this hour and a half that we had worship. You know, if you're not bringing your whole self into this, later on it will be evident that like I was here because my parental units, you know, made sure that I got there. But it, your heart has to, at some point, nobody can believe for you. Nobody can live your faith for you. You know, it has to be personal and real to you. And if it's not, it'll be evident at a point down the road in your journey. And of course, you know, God, God is always compelling us to, to faith and to following him, but we don't want to worship just... Uh, by rote, you know. By, we just have gone through the motion so long it doesn't even register to us what we're here for and what we're really doing. So when we glorify God, we glorify Him in our worship by really giving Him our, our heart and to give Him our will. Someone said, The hallowing of God's name is the end toward which His kingdom coming and the accomplishment of His will are among the means. In other words, what's God's purpose uh, in the big scheme, it's to glorify his name. God wants to be glorified among people because he created us and he made us for himself and for a relationship to him. And he's glorified when our obedience in the gospel leads to us having a worshiping life. And then lastly, your liberty in Christ should reflect maturity. How do I know that I'm a mature person? What are the signals? Well, maturity is evident when we see the value of other people. 
Because he, he asked that question. We saw, saw it in the reading of the Scripture where it says, well, why should my liberty be limited by somebody else? He says, because other human beings are, are created in the image of God too. Other human beings have value. And you remember the, in the Scripture, the, it's in the Gospel of Mark, that um, Jesus said, what will a person give in exchange for his soul? He said, um, what would a person give in exchange for his soul? In, in saying that, it's an incredulous question that leads us to understand the soul's worth. The soul is immensely important. So when we think about maturity, it's evident when I see other people and in the inherent value that is in them because they're made in the image of God. And then I relate to that person in ways that would honor God because that person is made in the image of God. So I don't want to manipulate or use or hurt that person. I want to bless and I want that person to be moved closer to Christ through who I am, not further away because of how I am in relationship to them. So that's how we know we're mature. The life that we live around other people is trying to put them into God's uh, orbit and not push them out of it. Maturity is evident when we avoid hypocrisy. Could we say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Would you be, you know, would you say that to somebody else? You should imitate me as I'm imitating Christ. That's what Paul said here. That would be a humbling thing to be able to say. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, but... If, if we think about it, all of us should, that should be how we live our lives. Brennan Manning, I just read his memoir recently. He was a, uh, a Marine. He, he was a, pro, a prominent speaker. Most notably, he wrote um, the Ragamuffin Gospel. And I really enjoyed his memoir because it was so honest. And he would acknowledge that he knew as much about being a hypocrite as anybody did. But he famously said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. He says, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Our freedom in Jesus is an incredible gift. That's the point of this passage. But it's vital to use it wisely. And it's contrary to God's intent to exercise our freedom for self-indulgence. That's not the behavior of a person who recognizes Jesus as Lord. And the Bible says that's the confession that saves every single authentically regenerate Christian. Jesus is Lord. And then we flesh that out. So we all work out this reality imperfectly. That's the truth. Nonetheless, it's our common understanding of historic Christianity that that grace means this. Grace means that we choose limits for the good of other people. The highest goal of a Christian is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what you were made for and what I was made for. And so the outworking of grace, not cheap grace, but graceful and powerful and wonderful, is our worship and contribution. I want to pray for us. And we're going to have a time uh, during a song of commitment. Maybe that there's a response that you need to make Today is if you listened, and uh, after that we're going to have a time of prayer for our graduates, and Cody will come up. But would you join me in standing 
And uh, if there's a commitment that you need to make, maybe it is that um, you want to profess your faith publicly and uh, be baptized as a follower of Christ. That is the appeal of the gospel. The gospel says at some point in your life, we yield and we lay down our uh, life and we follow Jesus. And if you've never done that, we'd be very happy to help you think through what, what it means to take that step. Or if there's some other way you need prayer today, I encourage you to, to, uh, to follow the Lord in that. God, thank you so much for your uh, love and for your grace. Pray that you'll bless in this time of commitment. In the rest of this morning, we are so uh, excited for what the Lord is doing in both of your lives. 